This homily was delivered by Deacon Joe Dietz at the evening prayer for healing in the church service conducted at Christ the King Catholic Church in South Bend, Indiana on October 2nd, 2018. A portion of this homily was also delivered during the Sunday service at St. Edward Catholic Church in Ashland, Ohio on September 9th, 2018. Although the content of this podcast is the same as what was preached, it has been recreated to improve the sound quality. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it became known that he was at home. Many gathered together so that there was no longer room for them, not even around the door, and he preached the word to them. They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Unable to get near Jesus because of the crowd, they opened up the roof above him. After they had broken through, they let down the mat on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there asking themselves, Why does this man speak this way? He is blaspheming. Who but God alone can forgive sins. Jesus immediately knew in his mind what they were thinking to themselves, so he said, Why are you thinking such things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, pick up your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your mat, and go home. He rose, picked up his mat at once, and went away in the sight of everyone. They were all astounded and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. The Gospel of the Lord As I reflected on this gospel, I imagined the beginning of the paralytic's journey. When those that carried him first looked at him with love and said, Old friend, are you tired of suffering? Well, we are going to do something about it. Don't be afraid. We are going to pick you up and carry you to Jesus. As we watch a seemingly endless number of abuse victims who have suffered so much and for so long, as we see the discomfort of good and faithful clergy cast into suspicion by the evil acts of the few, as we look upon a struggling church administration seemingly paralyzed and unable to act decisively and transparently to rid the church of this evil, and as we experience the church's mission to bring Christ to the world being impeded and hampered by the necessary yet non-stop reporting and discussion of its failure in this area. In our distress and discomfort, do we not share the desire to bring about healing in our church? In order for the paralytic to be cured, he required people of faith to take action. Of course, the first action toward the healing of any sickness or wound is recognizing there is a problem to be healed. Any physician will tell you that when treating a wound, you must first expose the wounded area, see the extent of the injury, clean it out, and then treat it. To this point, 
the misguided efforts of some in the church to hide the wound, to keep it covered up, unexposed to the light, to deny its existence, has resulted in exactly what one would expect. The wound is not treated, does not heal, it becomes worse, it gets infected, and the infection grows and spreads, ultimately affecting not only the first damaged area, but surrounding healthy tissue as well. In many ways, the problems of abuse, bad as they are, have been compounded and exacerbated by the effort to hide it and cover it up, to keep it from the light. But the words of the gospel call us not to denial and immobility, but to recognition, acknowledgement, action, and healing. The paralysis in the church requires people of faith to carry that part of the church so badly in need of healing, so desperately in need of repentance and forgiveness, to Jesus. Of course, exposing the problem no longer seems to be an issue, although it was not done properly or timely by the church, but had to be left to the criminal justice system. As you may or may not know, I have been a part of the criminal justice system for nearly 40 years, having worked first as a police officer and detective in Florida and Ohio, and later as a special agent for the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation. In reflecting on the intersection of my two occupations, I realized there were some similarities between police and clergy. Both are trusted positions of service with certain rights and privileges not afforded to others. And the police also have had to learn better ways to deal with problem people over the last 50 years. Two examples that come to mind are the ways police used to routinely deal with drunk drivers and domestic violence cases. In both situations, it was common to favor some other action rather than arrest. Drunk drivers were called a cab or gotten a ride home, and domestic violence cases were often handled by simply having the offending party leave the home for the night. Well-intentioned officers often erroneously dealt with the immediate problem, without considering the larger ongoing problem that had to be addressed. It was only after the police learned that the embarrassment, the cost, the sanctions, and the court-ordered intervention and treatment that followed an arrest were the only effective way to interrupt and impact the recurring cycles of alcohol abuse and domestic violence, that they then began arresting the offender in every case where they had evidence to do so. In dealing with these problems in the ways they did, before they knew better, the police failed to focus on the great risk to the victims from repeat offenders. They also failed to recognize the worst thing that could happen in arresting the offender and putting them into the system was far better than the worst thing that could happen if they did not. More innocent victimization. They also failed to fully appreciate that while the embarrassment, humiliation, and public knowledge of the offender's arrest had a negative impact on the individual, their family, and their job, it was precisely the knowledge and related fear of such embarrassment, humiliation, and negative consequence that served as a deterrent to the behavior of others. In the same way, and for some of the same reasons, the church also failed to act as it should have. Disregarding its own advice from Ephesians 5.11 to take no part in the fruitless works of darkness, 
but rather expose them. It has failed to deal with three related yet separate and distinct problems. The first is the presence of pedophiles, those that prey on prepubescent children, their presence in the priesthood. These are not priests that became pedophiles, but pedophiles that chose the priesthood as a means to access victims in order to pursue their deviant sexual preferences, much as they have historically sought work in other areas such as teaching, coaching, and scouting. We now know that they are not curable and must be removed and prosecuted. The second group are the predatory homosexuals that prey on teenagers and young adults. Note that I said predatory homosexuals, which does not refer to chaste, same-sex attracted clergy, but simply those who act in a predatory manner to sexually abuse victims. Media reporting on this group has been minimized, intentionally or not, by classifying all attacks on those under 18 as being on children, even though this perpetrator group differs significantly from those preying on victims aged 12 and younger. We cannot let a truthful discussion of this issue be sidetracked or impeded by an inaccurate description of those contributing to the problem. The members of a third group are not perpetrators of abuse, but the enablers of abuse. This group includes two subgroups. The first is those that upon suspecting or knowing of abuse fail to report it for a variety of reasons, none of which are acceptable. Some fail to report out of a fear of their own unchaste or sinful behavior being exposed. Some for fear their reporting would have a negative impact on their career. Others may have been afraid of intimidation or opposition from offenders in power, such as Cardinal McCarrick, and still others simply because they didn't want to get involved. The last group brings to mind the quote by Irish statesman Edmund Burke that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The other subgroup is those in positions of authority and responsibility that fail to take and maintain appropriate action when informed of such offenses, or, as we now know, in some cases, covered them up. It is really no longer just the abuse offenses themselves, as horrific as they may be, but most of which took place many years ago. But now the additional also most serious issue of cover-up. Who knew what and when, and what they did or did not do about it? This issue has involved and cast suspicion on all levels of the church hierarchy, including now even Pope Francis himself. Add to this the constant exposure and added drama by the public media that no longer can be depended on to report accurately and completely, but instead does so with a bias based on their own agenda. Is it any wonder that as Catholics, we feel that certain portions of our church need to be brought to Jesus for healing? And yet I say to you, loud and clear, in the words of Isaiah the prophet, be strong, fear not. Here is your God. He comes to save you. Because as uncomfortable as this business is for all of us, its exposure to the light, its being brought out into the open, is a good thing. Because as horrible as the abuse was, it was going on. It existed, but was hidden, 
if the structure of a church building is found to be infested with termites, while the discovery of the damage and the cost of the repair is not pleasant, discovering the problem and removing it before it does any more damage is a good thing. The termites were already there, eating away at the wood, compromising the structure. They were just undiscovered, and therefore were doing and would continue to do damage until the building was lost. The discovery and the eradication of the termites is a good thing, because that which was weakening and would ultimately destroy the church was discovered and could now be stopped, removed, and the building protected and restored. My point is this, that as awful and terrible as the news of the abuse and cover-up has been, it isn't something that just took place. It is something that has existed and was ongoing for some time. And even if we didn't know it, God knew it. And this exposure of it will now allow us to take measures to provide recompense for many, vindication for others, but also purification, reformation, and restoration, not only to the church, but to the system within it that failed. This is truly a work of God. When Francis of Assisi was praying before the crucifix in the chapel at San Damiano, he heard the Lord speak to him to rebuild my church which is in ruins. And Francis thought the Lord was talking about the physical building of San Damiano Chapel which was in disrepair. So he set about fixing up the building itself. First alone and then with the help of others, he repaired and restored the chapel. He didn't realize until later that Jesus was talking about the larger church that was in need of renewal. This task St. Francis also accomplished by the founding of the Franciscans for Men, the Poor Clares for Women, and eventually the Third Order for Lay People, all of which worked together to renew the church. The response of the faithful who helped St. Francis both in the rebuilding of the physical church of San Damiano and of the greater church through that renewal was not the retreat of the frightened, the despairing, or the disillusioned. It was the charge of the empowered. Our response today to this crisis can be no less immediate, inspired, or directed. Certain aspects of the church need to be fixed, and as faithful Catholics, we need to get our heads on straight and get about the task of fixing it. It may not be as dramatic as Jesus speaking audibly from the crucifix, but I believe in this gospel message we can hear God calling us to action as well. So what can we do? We cannot proceed on a basis of how we feel, but on what we believe, what we are committed to. The fact that we are disillusioned, disappointed, hurt, and angry does not eliminate, but rather makes more urgent our need to pray and act. Make no mistake, this series of events is a spiritual punch in the face, and we have to choose to fold or respond. The evil that is present and the devastation it perpetrates on the victims and on the church is straight from hell. Therefore, our efforts must be in opposition to the devil and his evil intentions. So as Jesus told us when dealing with demons, we must pray and fast. First, for the victims and their families then for the greater church, its leadership, and its clergy, and also for the civil justice system and the community at large it serves. 
and in the same way that extraordinary times call for extraordinary measures. If we want to be part of the solution, we have to pray and fast beyond what is normal for us. Skip a meal. Add a rosary. Make the chaplet of divine mercy and the prayer to St. Michael a part of your daily prayer. Make a visit to the Blessed Sacrament. Strap on your sword and run to the battle. Now, some of you may say, well, given the questions raised, I'm not quite sure how to pray for those cardinals, bishops, and priests accused of wrongdoing. My advice is rather than getting caught up in who you are praying for, remember who you are praying to. You are praying to God who knows all, from whom nothing is hidden. He doesn't read the papers or check social media to find out who did what. He knows who did what. Jesus did not check the paralytic's Facebook page to find out what kind of man he was. He knew his condition and his sin. So we can be comfortable praying for those involved, depending on God's knowledge and judgment, in words such as these. Dear Lord, I pray or offer this sacrifice on behalf of bishop, father, deacon, whoever. In accord with your holy will, if he is innocent of wrongdoing, I pray that he be exonerated to continue his good work in serving you and the church. If he has made errors, I pray that they be brought to light, that he admit them, repent of them, and submit to correction and reform as needed to better serve your holy church. If, Lord, he has committed crimes or serious offenses that render him unfit to continue in his service to the church, I pray, Lord, if it is your holy will that he be removed from his position, that justice be served, and that he repent and through your mercy obtain salvation. We can't go wrong if we pray in accord with God's knowledge, justice, and holy will. In addition to our prayer and fasting, we the faithful can also make our voices heard. We can write our bishop or the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops expressing our support and concern our desire for accountability and transparency. And you as lay people also could offer to participate as part of the suggested laity involvement in reforms and oversight going forward. And lastly, there is one more thing. We must, by our own holy lives, create an environment in which our clergy are called to greater lives of holiness. Make no mistake, it is a challenge for priests to live chaste lives in a world overrun with watered-down values, overt sexuality, and internet pornography. When I was ordained, my brother deacons and myself were called forward to be of service to the diocese. Whether they be deacon, priest, or bishop, your ordained ministers are called to be first of all servants of the church, of the faithful, of service to you. We generally don't think of servants as being superior to those they serve. It is expected that the servant ascribes to the values and standards of their employer, not the other way around. The Catholic clergy are an integrated part of the community in which we serve, not superior to it, but in service to it and dependent on it. Our relationship with our clergy should be an ongoing, back-and-forth call to greater holiness, charity, love, and service, not a back-and-forth compromise and reduction 
in values and truth. The faithful should be living the call, expecting encouragement and challenge from their deacons, priests, and bishops, and encouraging and challenging them in return. We should not look to our priests as some isolated, unique, and superior group called to an unrealistic standard of life, but as servant leaders, a natural extension of a holy and faithful people. Policies and guidelines are needed, but we can't legislate behavior we are not willing to model. The call, the demand of a holy priesthood, can only be legitimately issued from a holy people. To paraphrase Cardinal Thomas Collins, neither Christianity nor the priesthood is an abstract ideal. God does not play with us, holding out to us an ideal that is impossible for us to live. By God's grace, and only by God's grace, every single one of us can actually become a saint. Vatican II spoke of the universal call to holiness, not the universal call to mediocrity. With a vision of the purifying refiner's fire to keep us honest, we are challenged every day to be a happy, healthy, holy people, supporting and encouraging happy, healthy, and holy priests. Nothing less than that. That is the reality of our call as a people of God and the call of those who serve us. And so we are called to keep our heads held high. While St. Paul says in Ephesians, we draw our strength from the Lord and from his mighty power. For our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but with the principalities, with the powers, with the world rulers of this present darkness, with the evil spirits in the heavens. We must remember that the basis for our faith is not with any human individual, but with our mighty God, not in relationship with the weakness of humanity, which is sure to fail us, but with the awesome, holy, mighty God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who will never fail us. While the sins of the members of the community wound the church, they cannot kill it. And we must now, more than ever, conduct ourselves as believers, rooted in a faith that cannot be shaken by human weakness, that rests in the truth, in the relationship, in the love, mercy, and power of God. We are not meant to be on the sidelines in this battle. We are called to be in the thick of it. This is not a time to stand idly by, lamenting or complaining. This is a time to get up pick up our church and get going. Our prayers, our service, our intercession, our sacrifice, and our desire to be holy make a difference. They make a difference to the victims who have suffered so much. They make a difference to the vast majority of good, chaste, dedicated, faithful, and holy priests, bishops, and deacons who have done nothing wrong but are being treated with suspicion and contempt because of the wrongful actions of the few who have damaged not only their victims, but the church as well. And they make a difference to the larger body of Christ, which also suffers and needs healing. I think it is safe to say that the four friends who carried the paralytic to Jesus did not come away without their own experience of God's healing and mercy. 
Let us pray as we heed the call to help heal the church, that we also will experience the love, mercy, and healing power of God as he affirms our faith and calls us to greater holiness. For questions or comments on this homily, write to Deacon Joe 2017 at gmail.com.